Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Bill Dawes has played Paul Hornung and Mickey Mantle in separate Broadway productions and recently wrapped a run on stage as famed Russian ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev. He plays a struggling stand-up comedian trying to pitch a TV series in his latest role, the independent movie Before the Sun Explodes, which premiered at 2016's South by Southwest Festival in Austin. Dawes knows more than a little bit about stand-up, having performed for the military on USO tours, holding down a regular gig for years at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood, and even trying to help Tucker Max adapt his bestseller into a feature film. Dawes also knows me since we were college classmates and played football together. Yes, another one. We talk about that and more, so let's get to it. Well, Bill Dawes, you have made it. <laughs> You're a star of a film at South by Southwest. Yes, I am. So, Not the first time, by the way. No, when was the first time you were here? The first time was 2004. Okay. When I was a zygote. Oh. And it was not in the film. <laughs> you were just a, metaphorically a yeah, baby. I was, uh, in it was my Hollywood. first feature lead. Actually, it wasn't. It was my, I don't know, whatever. But, um, I played a cop in a film called Even Hand. Okay. I've seen, I've seen clips from that. Yeah, with Bill Sage, who's now on Happen Leonard on Sundance Channel. He's, he's had quite a fruitful career. Um, and it was basically the two of us, and we were just in a cop car. It was sort of like Reno 911 before Reno 911 happened. Oh, wow. It was okay. sort of about the real lives of cops, which is it's boring as shit <laughs> when you're not killing black people. <laughs> so you have to, like, sort of, you know, fuck with people and and mess with people and take on these weird sort of mentorship programs with kids that you think could be helped. Right. Um, which is what we found. We did drive-alongs for two months, and... You know, I was like, I'm a method actor. I got like cop fat, which I've never lost. <laughs> well, you're actually, uh, I know I've, I've seen you recently in New York City. We're in Austin now at South by Southwest, but I saw you a few months ago in New York when you were trying to slim down for your latest yes. role playing Rudolf, Rudolf Noreev. Noreev. Gay Russian, ba- yeah, so I had to pay, play a gay Russian ballet dancer and there's, n- with AIDS. Right. So he never went through a chunky phase. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he never went, like, there was never, like, okay, a ballet dancer, like, going to seed. But it's like, yeah. as he was going to seed, he got AIDS. So there was never a, f- there was never one justifiable moment where he had a beer gut. So I was like, I got to get rid of my beer gut. That was the, literally, my entire focus for the show was, mm-hmm. like, lines were secondary, the emotion. I was like, I just got to, like, find a way to not have a beer gut. Is that the opposite from playing Mickey Mantle? Kind of. <laughs> Famous yeah. alcoholic athlete? Yeah. Mickey Mantle, I was like, because I was, I can only play, I can only play like a famous someone going to seed. <laughs> I'm never on the way up. So yeah, Mickey Mantle, I was like, well, he's Mickey Mantle kind of like going to seed. And mm-hmm. I can kind of look, and you know, and that's a theater and a Broadway stage. So it's, you know, like 900 seats, whatever. And, and I just remember just because of my massive insecurity. The only thing I feel like I can control is is the only thing you can really control is your physical appearance on some level, whether it's makeup or, or chemistry or whatever, mm-hmm. surgery or whatever. But um but there's there's stuff that you can really control. Like I can gain weight to be Mickey Mantle. So I did like protein, protein shakes, protein shakes. I worked out like crazy and I got up to like two oh seven, two hundred seven pounds. Wow. Um but I was also I had a I had a gut. Right. And I have like little eyes. Then like my face grows around my eyes and then I just like I have beady, crazy like serial killer eyes. And then um I uh and then since then I've kind of played some cop roles and I was like, Okay, I'll just be kind of like kind of like thick meaty cop guy. Um and then I got cast as Nureyev for some reason. I didn't really see why he cast me. Well, you you auditioned for it, didn't you? I auditioned <laughs> for it. But, but, it's not like they <laughs> surprised. Yeah. You're going to be a famous ballerina. What's this letter in the mail? No, it was – um. 
But I, I, I auditioned for it, but I didn't. I was like, there's got to be, like, I'm not a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. Although you know about body hype. But I'm not. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that in a yeah, second. Yeah, 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 yeah. Without the years. And then um, we, we, you know, but I'm not a ballet dancer. So look at a ballet dancer. Look at a guy who's Russian or looks Russian. Mm-hmm. You're going to get like an Irish white trash <laughs> nine dancer with a beer gut to play this role. Why would you do that? Like, mm-hmm. this is suicide. Um, so once I got cast, all I could think about was I got to find a way to lose weight. That's all I thought about. So I, I, Got on a pretty pretty strict regimen, like paleo regimen, of um, where you eat like steak, vegetables, and then you puke it out. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I've heard of the first part, the yeah. puking part. Tell me more about that. <laughs> sounds interesting. So it's pretty much like the paleo diet. You just like eat, uh, you know, like get, get rid of all, obviously, no bread, no pizza, no pasta, no ice cream. No, the only sugar you can have is fruit. Okay. And that is sparingly, and particular fruits. I lost fifteen pounds in like um, in um, less than a month. You know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's it sounds like. Did you feel bananas. good? There was a, about a week where I wanted to murder everybody. Was that the first week or the third or fourth week? Okay, that was about a month where I wanted to murder everybody. <laughs> Okay. I don't know. If, I don't know if that had to do with the fact that the diet, or just that I just in general wanted to murder everybody because I was in friggin' New Jersey in January. So how doing all of those roles, portraying famous people, and now this film before the sun explodes, you're playing a stand-up comedian. I'm sort of, sort of ish playing myself. Yeah. yeah. Well, yourself, but in a parallel universe where you have yeah. a wife and two kids. Yeah. And you're kind of. Wondering about where your where your own career is at. Yeah. Was that the first time you've actually played a comedian in a role? Um, playing something yes. this close to. Yeah. Well, the 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 story that doesn't really get told about this film is, I met the writer Zeke, a long time ago, like ten years ago, maybe okay. longer. Um, he was writing, uh, a movie that was kind of like. All about Eve, but set in Greece mm-hmm. at Yale Drama School during production of Greece. Like this understudy who's like trying to kill the lead actress and because um, Meryl Streep's going to come and see the show. And it's like this whole thing. So I and I really related to it. Was sort of like before Smash and before Glee. Okay. This right. was and it was it was being written for a studio, and he had a lot of people doing coverage and notes for it. And I said, let me take a crack at it. So I did coverage for it and he said i've had icm ca all these people and the, you had the best notes ever so just from that we've stayed in touch and he would always bring up like you gave me the best notes i've ever got and then we do a couple readings and then one time but like not really you know i go back to new york and la and i was in la i was like i should <laughs> i should network <laughs> hey zeke if you're doing any readings and then zeke sort of was like i'm actually doing this reading uh, of a guy, a comic, and so I, you know, go and I read the breakdown. I'm like, comic, father, playing the clubs, not making it, 40, blah, blah, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. And I'm going like, wait a second. <laughs> so he sort of based it on me. You know, he based the role on me. Okay. And he thought of, and so he sort of wrote it with me in mind. Right. Um, and I think when he, there was a point when he, where we were friends, we were talking, where he knew that I was dating this incredibly beautiful, wealthy woman. Okay. Who was kind of like putting me up and I was living at her place. <laughs> so he turned that into, So he, what if that was actually a, turned into a marriage and kids? And Yes, I think so. He doesn't really go deep into the, the rabbit hole about how much it is based on me, but there's enough where I'm like, what the fuck? So um, the first reading, I just did it because you show up for a reading. I've done so many readings, I showed up like, you don't think about it. Right. You just read it. So I didn't say screw the pooch, but I didn't quite bring whatever myself to it. And then Zeke afterwards like, so Deborah isn't really interested in you for the role, um, but I told her that I wrote it for you, and you have to know that I wrote it for you. I was like, you did? He goes, yeah. So we're going to do another reading in a couple of weeks. Fucking bring it. <laughs> so, um, so then I was the best me that I could be right. at the next reading, and um, and then. Because Zeke and Deborah had no concept of the comedy world at all, right. they kind of turned to me to be sort of the link to like 
authenticity for the comic. So, you know, I'm close with Jamie Masada and the Laugh Factory, so I got them to donate the club. And that's sort of like, you know, that's... And Jamie appears in a cameo. Which is so weird with doing Johnny Sanchez's voice, <laughs> right. if you notice. I did notice it wasn't Jamie's voice when it... It's I, so was, I was like, wait, who was... Who's the MC in this? And then it cuts to <laughs> Jamie Masada introducing him. I'm like, that wasn't Jamie's voice. That was so crazy. Well, there was, you know, wh- one of the things, one of the disparities I have with the filmmakers about, which I'm not saying I'm right or they're right. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. They went into they went in a direction that, of the comedy world being this very muted world, and my presence in it, a muted presence, and my um, set bombing like out of hand out of gate like basically they went with the idea of like here's an unfunny comic right doing unfunny material for an audience who doesn't like them i personally believe that lowers the stakes of the journey but i think they feel like that is the point of it to a degree so we just i i'm in the world of comedy so much so for me it just felt inauthentic well i got the sense watching the movie that they wanted to make the audience feel like you're on your last straw. Yeah. There's a sense of desperation. For sure. Like, if I don't even have this, what do I have left? Yeah, 100%. You doing, as you were making this movie, did you start to think about like an, a parallel universe version of you? Of like Parallel? <laughs> exact universe. same universe. Well, you me. haven't gotten married, have you? Or no. Single? No kids? No, I have a kid. I have a kid. Oh, you do? Yeah, I have a kid. From a from a one and done back when okay. I was a wee lass, <laughs> who's an amazing you know, but she lives with her mom. But mm-hmm. we're in touch, and she's an amazing. Uh, I have a daughter; she's really okay. incredible kid. Um, but yeah, that that path of there are plenty of times where I could have married. You know, I mean, look at the school we went to. There are plenty of times I could have married a rich person and been a and been a stay at home dad, been a stay at home dad. Who, you know, who's a part time comic? Who's a part time comic? Sort of. Or is even like a full-time comic with a long-suffering wife who's like, mm-hmm. okay, here you go. And part of the reason why, whether it's an excuse or not, part of the reason why I've never really been married or even been like in that serious relationship was like, hey, man, I've traveled the world, babe. Right. I don't know where I'm going to be next week. What are we going to do? How can we commit? <laughs> and I realized it's kind of full of shit that I kind of am. And I have, you know, I have a place in New York, and I go back and forth to New York and LA, yeah. and I kind of keep everything – I keep every, everything feels a little tangential, like every element of my career, like my comedy career, although it, it's, you know, I'm always doing it. It's, I, I can always drop it too for, like for the Nuria play, I dropped it for a month or so. Right. I just stopped doing it and working at Gotham and different places. And you've had a couple of successful Broadway runs too, so it's, yeah, you're not doing comedy. But then I do, then I'll do it. comedy for a long time and right. then no theater. And then I'm like, well, I guess I'm just a comic. And then when I try to do theater, for example, when I got cast as Rudolf Nureyev, people were like, you know, it was really cool. Like, here's this comic playing Rudolf Nureyev. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, well, no, I'm not. That's not what it is. Right. I went to school for, for acting, and I've always been an actor. I've been in three Broadway shows. I've done created this many off-Broadway shows. So I'm not a People have to put you in one place. Right. They have to put you as a comic. They have to put you as an actor. And if, if, if and the only way you can mix them is if, it, if you're at the level of like Jamie uh, Jamie Fox, who's you know who who can defy convention because he just has in such a huge way. Right. Even Sarah Silverman, who had that movie I Smile Back, which mm-hmm. I have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. But then it was like, wow, she can really act. But right. the surprise, and I'm sure for her to hear, wow, you can really act. She probably feels like. Fuck you, motherfuckers! Yeah, I can act. Right, I've always known I can. She act. started out in musical theater before yeah. she did comedy. What about you? Like, um, well, <laughs> let me let me intru- get into this first. You did an episode of Royal Pains. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you about that as a lead-in yeah. to this. What were you in? I I don't remember the episode because I'm not a big Royal Pains fan. What? But but I know the star of that is our our Mark mutual. Forcey, yes. Um, mate Mark Feuerstein. It was kind of a weird thing. I was in um I was in LA and um oh th- this is this is an example of why you should always be a nice person, boo. <laughs> so I've had plenty of friends who've gotten like really big and successful and mm-hmm. famous and whether people admit it or not, when you become a big successful 
famous actor, particularly when you're at a place where you're a producer on a TV show, you can put your friends in it. Right. Which is the person I always think I would be. Um, so when it's what I've always been, I've gotten so many people jobs. It's crazy. So, um, I, um, look at me like just bragging about how generous I am. Uh, whatever. But like Adam Sandler is a huge example of that. Great example. He's surrounded his whole production team, like supporting roles in films. Yeah. And so there are people like, you know, there are people like Mike Hall, who's a brilliant actor and, you know, he could have, he had a lot of friends he could have brought Mm -hmm. into Dexter and he never did. And it's like, that's his business. He's right. very private, and I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but I'm just not that guy. So the minute this film was done, and they were like, "We're looking for people," I went away. I was like, well, "What comics can I get in this movie? What mm-hmm. what actor friends? What comic friends?" So I, when the first people I called was Mark Forrestine, and the script was very was very malleable at this point too. You know, so uh, there was like the agent part could have been bigger, and mm-hmm. I thought maybe so. I thought Mark would be a great agent. You know, as a favor or whatever, right. but they would build the role around him if he if someone like him did it. So I called my ass him. He was he's too busy, and then it probably just percolated with him. And a few days later, he goes, you know, there's a role in Royal Pains that we haven't been able to find. So I sent a tape in from mm-hmm. L.A. He was like, okay, here you go, and then got the offer, which is always weird when it's always the thing that you least fight for and the thing right. that you least actually <laughs> like. Nor have I auditioned for once. And I, I never, you know, then you audition for seven times. They're like, Ugh. it's almost right. like the more you audition for something, the less chance you're going to get it. Because it means there's, they're going like, there's, right, there's don't. more chances for them to say no. Yeah, yeah. And they're more, ch- and they're just, and means, if they keep bringing back the means, they're kind of like, I don't know, maybe you can convince me this time. So what's, what was working with Mark like? I never worked with Mark. I worked with Ben Shankman and okay. the other guy. I did table read with Mark. It's mm-hmm. great. Mark is like one of the most gregarious, loved people. He's got that, you know, fucking hey. Right. His that force of, of personality that people just love and respond to. He's a warm guy. But you know, we're we're far enough removed now from campus life and lightweight football and all of that. Yeah. Did you uh, did you ever imagine that you might be like sitting at a table read with? Wow. Like both being in. TV and having long-standing careers and it's so funny. I never. I guess I never stopped to think about the kind of the weirdness of that of of life that way. Um, that isn't. It did strike me as one. Mark just always struck me. Not like Mark always struck me as someone's going to be famous. But mm-hmm. It just never surprised me when Mark got. And I've known Mark for so long that like he's always had sh- series, right? Do you know what I mean? Um. And I always thought, like, I'll probably do one of his series at one point. So it didn't have one of these weird kind of, like, also, let's face it, it's just Royal Pains. It's TBS. What are we talking about? <laughs> but um, USA. Yo. <laughs> oh, yeah, TBS is actually, yeah, Breaking Bad. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, it's it's not like I'm going, like, here I am. <gasps> Can't believe. But um, I've had had moments, like, actually, with this with this film – um, I met this young kid, Mike Kwame, when he was 17. He, oh, he's the kid who's responsible for Funny or Die. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know I'm glad this. you mentioned it because I was looking through the credits and I saw his name as an executive producer. I'm like, where have I seen that name? And yeah. I Googled it and I was like, oh, he's the guy who, when he was a kid, his, he was 17, his, he his father, him. he went to his father who was a venture capitalist and yeah, went to got him to start up Funny or Die. So – so that's a moment, sort of like what you're referring to, like, you know, you ever this place, like, Mike, I met him when he was 17, mm-hmm. and he was at the Laugh Factory, and he looked like this, like, adorable date rapist. And, uh, you know, like... <laughs> there's there's more than a few of those roaming around the streets of Austin this week. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. And I was like, well, let's go to Coffee Bean, my tree, and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. and his jokes were like, I have a joke about, like, a falcon teabagging somebody, and saying, no homo, and I'm going, okay, and then it was like poop and masturbation, and I'm going, like... This is like a weird kid, but there's something really cute about it. At the time, I was I was headlining around a lot. Not a lot, but like I don't want to name drop like Saskatoon. <laughs> Not to brag. Was that and when I'm, you were also hosting like the college night every well, weekend? That, uh... that was in New York, yeah. Okay. No, this is after that. This oh, is kind okay. of So this was um, – so Mike is 26 now. So right. This is nine years ago. So this is like 2006 or something like that, 2007. Right. Um, and uh, I – 
Yeah, so I took them on the road. I took them to like Salt Lake City and mm-hmm. Saskatoon and Punchline and different places. And what's going when, when when that was something that I thought I wanted to do, and I since realized I don't really want to be to that. be a road comic. No, I don't really want to be a yeah. If I was making a shit ton of money, but like two thousand dollars a weekend is like no thanks. It's just I just had enough of it, you know. So anyway, um. But I brought Mike along to him, and then after I'd been hanging out with him for six months, I think I was like bragging about a video I had on Funny or Die. He was like, "Well, I actually helped create that." And I was like, "Whatever, loser! No, you did. You're my, you're my lowly feature. Go get me coffee." And then he, um, <laughs> really, and then he told me about it, and then I found out about like you know, father, grandfather, mm-hmm. aunts, in laws, like the country of of Kwame that existed in Silicon Valley, and that this guy was kind of like this heir to this sort of throne. And so we'd been friends for six months before I ever knew any of this stuff. Wait, he, you were bringing him along as a feature, n- having no idea no that idea. he was no clue. Kind of the brainchild behind, and not just the brainchild, but that, but just that he 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 was also like, literally child, brainchild. Yes, of he was the he was the progeny of this like going absurdly, you know, successful going, hedge fund family going, and all that. Yeah, so going, like he was Silicon family royalty, like they were in the. You know, the TMZ of, of yeah. Silicon Valley. So anyway, I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, his parents went through a divorce. Um, his comedy was always – he had it was funny. It was mm-hmm. okay. You know, whatever. Uh, he would bomb and I'd make him feel better and he'd do well and mm-hmm. make him feel good about that. And then uh, his parents went through a divorce, which in that world is a huge, huge deal. And for any kid who was 17 – I think he was 18 at the time, 19. And he wrote something called Alden James – that kind of dealt psychologically with it. It's sort of about a guy who had an imaginary friend mm-hmm. that like Calvin and Hobbes, but like a really, but the Hobbes was like this aggressive, aggressive id that just wanted to destroy everything. Um, and he wrote it, and I just read it, and I said, "You found your life calling, dude. This is it. This is it. Just don't do worry about comedy. Don't worry about acting, because mm-hmm. he's also acting, and he's." I said, this is it, dude. This is your thing. And I put in money to shoot the spec pilot um, and was in it. And then MTV bought it, shelved it, which is what they love mm. to do. Um, but it set up the beginning of his production company. And now this motherfucker, these years later, he's now – he wrote the new SpongeBob movie for studio. Oh, wow. Right in the new – commissioned to write the new Lego movie. Um, he – Wrote a movie that's being produced by Adam McKay. He's writing another movie right now that Adam Devine is attached to. Um, so he's a studio feature writer. Like he's, you know, he's in it. He's in the world wow. of. So all started from this weird. So him being here and us walking around Austin together mm-hmm. as, and I'm going to his wedding in Hawaii. You know, after this, so like that was one of those moments where you're kind of like, I saw you, you were 17. You look like you. Just got out of a, a fresh college date rape party, and like, <laughs> now you're going to get married as 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 you're writing the new Lego movie, and yeah. like, and you produce EP'd my film. That's like a weird, you know. For me, that was one of those moments. I think you're referring to with the Mark thing. The Mark thing just felt like it felt like, of course. Well, we all well, we all met when we were seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, yeah. And what did you What did you envision? Your future to be like when you were that age. I mean, I never when thought you, when you came on campus. What did you think you wanted I to do after, this, man, after for, school? For, for for better, for worse, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, I've never had a vision of my future. I really haven't. It sounds like a scapegoat, and I think that's been hurtful in terms of the secret. Like I've never said like I want to be on a TV show, and I wanted to do do do. Right. I remember my biggest dream when I first started acting at Princeton. Because I wasn't doing comedy. My biggest dream was like I would go to McCarter Theater and I'd look at a playbill. And a guy guy's name would be in a playbill. Yeah. And it would be like credits include Guiding Light, Law and Order. I'd be like, oh, that's what I want. So that was like my bar. Okay. Like to be in a playbill with a, like a soap credit and like a Law and Order <laughs> credit. And then you get out of school like that's the first thing that happens. You get on a playbill but with it- a soap credit and you're like, oh. I should think about what else. Right. How much further? But, it, I but, that, go. but at least seeing those off Broadway, off 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 Broadway shows at McCarter put planted a seed. 
Yeah, I guess so. It's he gave you yeah. he gave you a goal. Like, oh, yeah, I want I, I want to be in a playbill and have yeah credits. Isn't that, and, that weird that, that that was so? That's where you grow up poor. Your goal. Well, like, what's weird for me bill. in 2016 is realizing that at that same time, Ted Cruz was running around campus wanting to have all the power, and now he's running around the country wanting to have all the power. Isn't that crazy? It's it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not as crazy as the guy he's running against, but yeah, of course. Um, so yeah. when you, <laughs> so when you were in school, you did start to pursue acting. Yeah, I had I got my minor. And you were doing dancing. Dance. I was <laughs> body. Height. I was dancing. I was doing a little go go, um, and uh, yeah, and then and then my senior year in, in college, I was I interviewed at NASA. I interviewed at Wall Street. I had a briefcase and a suit that my dad had bought me, and I went around with the briefcase and suit. And at one point, I was just like, "This is like, what the fuck am I doing?" It just felt not not like, "Oh man, I can't be a slave to the man." Because look, if if money fills up your dick and mm-hmm. making money and moving money and 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 the world of finance and speculation fills up your dick, like good for you. That's awesome. That's a great great thing to be turned on by. Um, if if physics turns up on your dick like but none of that's the only thing that ever got me interested that really would wake me up out of bed with like you know was was creating something and whether it was like choreographing a dance or or creating a play or working on a new play it was that was it that was the only thing that kind of like worked for me what did you major in i was aerospace engineer okay yeah so i wasn't good but i got by but interviewing at NASA would make more sense for that than going to Wall Street. Yeah, but but you know I don't think you know, but like with like schools like Princeton, like they just they're just cherry picking. Yeah, the finance the financial sector is cherry picking. Yeah, there were so many people going into financial people. consulting. Yeah. People, you know, Anderson Consulting pursued me. I don't even know if they're around anymore. But Anderson Consulting, and I was like, I wasn't a great student, but right. they just were like. This is the type of guy we want. Right, you have an Ivy League, Ivy League degree. I, I, believe, I have a Prince Ivy League degree. I graduated, you know, cum laude. Even though my the only way I got cum laude was all my bullshit safety classes and English <laughs> stuff. It wasn't from <laughs> engineering. Uh, see, I majored in politics and then went into newspapers. So I had moments where I would see our classmates going to Wall Street or being going to law school and being successful and going, did I? Make the right choice, or did I just squander all of this education and money? Do you still think that? No, no, no. Of course not, because you realize how miserable they are. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's mis. I mean, I I followed my passion, and my passion was in journalism. Yeah. Even though I knew there was no money in it, but I was like, "This is what I love doing, and I love Mm -hmm. being a part of it." I mean, the only times I had regrets was when I saw other people with fame and money. I was like, "Oh, and I can't afford anything." Yeah, I know. That's the only problem, right? But that's just a momentary feeling. That's not a Yeah. Yeah. That passes. Yeah, and it's also and the and the the good or the bad thing about being in this business is you end up becoming friends with or working with people who who are who either get absurdly famous or sort of famous right. or but but always more famous than you. And then some people who are just like puttering around. And you kind of see, like, it. You know, it sounds so fucking Depeche Mode. People are people, but it's it's sort of like they they kind of are. And what happens when people start getting into this really famous place? They they just surround themselves with a bunch of sycophants and yes men who tell them everything they're doing is divinely shat from their asshole, and that they and and they're and they're, and sometimes they end up doing like a bunch of garbage. But enough about Tucker Max. Let's. Oh, Tucker Max. He's a perfect example. I'm out. He's one of the guys I'll, I'll name names. I could go on about Tucker Max. Well, you like, were in that movie that he. Well, I mean, like based on his book, when he was just, like an internet famous. I can't comedian. blame. I will not blame Tucker Max. I will say this: he was on Adderall, mm-hmm. which makes people delusional, like factually. You mm-hmm. can Google it. <laughs> and and then he was surrounded by people who were just like. You know Tucker Max, like of course you should refer, refer to yourself in third person. And his book, his first book, was so good, and it was a bestseller for so long 
that when he thought he was going to turn into a movie, considering every other number one New York Times bestseller was like Marlon, Marlon and me and was a huge fucking mm-hmm. like, you know. Um, but his inability to kind of relinquish control of it and his inability to kind of see the movie for what it was, it just it, – because I was involved writing in the movie in the beginning. I was doing rewrites and okay. coverage and stuff. And then they came back with the third version. And I remember they going, well, I go, the third version got all like a real – did you ever see the movie? No. It got real sentimental <laughs> and about like Tucker lost his best friend. And I go, why the fuck is this here? It's Tucker Max. Who gives a shit about his best friend? Mm-hmm. It's about him fucking and pooping and getting drunk and – and uh, they were like, no, David Zuckerberg from from Family Guys, he got involved now, and he thinks it needs this. I was like, I don't, I go fuck Family Guy. That show isn't mm-hmm. even funny. <laughs> <laughs> you just ruined this fucking movie by trying to make it like have a heart. It mm-hmm. doesn't have a heart. So they shot that movie, mm-hmm. and then I go on the tour bus, and they pay me a ridiculous amount of money to go on this tour bus and just like have an MC and fuck with people, which is fine. I was like, for two months, fifteen grand. I was like, I'll do it. Oh wow, nice. And um. We, and I remember Tucker Max would give these, like, Lombardi speeches to the crew <laughs> about, like, guys, you're going to remember this your whole life. This is going to change the history. He has a list. Mm-hmm. Change the history of Hollywood, and we're going to like to And I'm, I'm, and I would go back to these lowly, like, interns and crew people and editors, and I would go, hey, guys, you know this movie isn't that good, right? Don't move out of your home in Ohio <laughs> banked on the rudiest media fucking mm-hmm. plane taking off because it's not going to. This, this is, film is going to fail. Yeah, I you have to know that. Got savaged. Yeah, and and the, and and just so I don't look like a fucking cr- asshole mm-hmm. out of hand, it'd be one thing if Todd goes, "Hey man, I want the movie to do well. I want you know, I'm hoping for ten million dollars. I'm hoping for like maybe five million. Mm-hmm. That we could do." The, what he t- told everyone, mm-hmm. he said, "This movie will at least make a hundred million, guaranteed." <laughs> Wrote it. He goes, "It'll probably get two hundred million. Beat Wedding Crashers." <laughs> It'll be the biggest R-rated movie of all time, and it was kind of right right after Hangover came out. Sure, Hangover. so so Wedding Crash was still number one, setting was, a bar. Yeah, he's like, it, it, it goes. I think we can get to two hundred. I think I don't know about two hundred. We're kind of a, but we'll definitely get a hundred million. And we got, and, and I was just like, I do. I I was like, I'm looking at these people like, you'll be unbelievably lucky if you get ten million. You know this, right? And they're like, you just don't understand Hollywood. And I'm like. Okay, you're a blog. Okay. Right. The movie made 1.4 million. So that's that's a level of delusion. That's that's a crazy level of delusion to think that a movie is going to make 200 million when it ends up making 1.4 million. And then what you did, what he did is he wrote a, a blog about how how Fox distribution fucked up the mm. advertising or something. So he's out of his mind. That's enough about Tucker. Yeah. When you, <laughs> how how quickly were you? Able to get rid of your delusion of when you were post college walking around with a Wall Street suit and realize that's not who you are. How how quickly were you able to figure out that no, you wanted to be actor first or comedian first? Which did you? I went to grad school for acting, so the comedy came out of. Um, I wrote some stuff about the comedy came out of. Uh, I never really thought I wanted to be a Wall Street guy. I remember I used to go into meetings at Wall Street. By the way, I didn't do like a dozen meetings. I did a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just say talking points that I would hear people. I would regurgitate. It was like, I believe in like the future of America. And I'm I'm curious about speculation, commodities, and how – I would just say whatever bullshit someone had said. I remember at one point I was saying at an interview. I think my it was my last interview. And I said some, some bullshit soundbitey thing that I screwed up. So the guy could tell that I literally had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and he goes – and he said – he followed up and I just kind of looked at him and was like, I don't know, man. I said, I just want to – I said something like, I just want a job or something like really like mm-hmm. I don't care. I'm just looking for a job. He's like, OK, thank you. Because for a second I was like, maybe he'll like my honesty. Right. And then I threw my bro- – I threw, I literally – this sounds so poetic, but I, th- I was walking on the West Side Highway. I threw my briefcase in the river. I said, fuck it. I'm not doing it. I never, I never, I think I didn't tell my father I stopped interviewing, but I got into grad school, got into NYU grad school, which is one of the better ones. Yeah. And, um, and I convinced my parents that, that was a good move. And they're like, well, it's still school. And they're like, it's a phase, and, right. you know, 
I'll have an advanced degree. <laughs> yeah, and then you get out, you're like, this is what I'm doing. Something on the like, resume. Fuck. But I think they, and both my brothers are doctors, and they're both, um, you know, successful in their fields, mm-hmm. and they've married doctors, PhDs and doctors, so they've had kids, and so on one level you'd think, well, they must go, look at this successful people and then this black sheep, but on the other level, like, my brother's like, what's it like, <laughs> it's like 12 years a slave, yeah. what's it like out there in the real world, you live in the north, you know? That's what I feel. It's like, uh, have you gone to reunions? I went like my fifth, and I was like, that's it. The last major one I went to, I felt like that. Like there were just a few of us who were single and in the arts. And <laughs> instead of us being jealous of the people with families, they were all jealous of us. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if that's something that has turned in the past like 20 or 30 years, the idea. Because now people are like, oh, are you jealous of – I'll give you a perfect example. Perfect example. You'll maybe get – Lee Carpenter, know the mm-hmm. name? Lee Carpenter, Princeton class of <laughs> she. Um, she's a Dupont. Mm-hmm. I had such a crush on her all through school. She's uh, like huge, huge crush. And she didn't really date me because I wasn't very fancy. <laughs> I wasn't an Ivy or Tigerian, or mm-hmm. I was in Quad. Okay. And my dad worked. Low level they government. They had a huge position. takeover of Quad, so it became popular. <laughs> so anyway, did it, did it, did it really? Anyway, so um, the um, you know what I mean. But there was never any legacy, and mm-hmm. but she was a Dupont, and I was happy. She was like, I was her booty call from the other side of the tracks. <laughs> so um, she uh, and we stayed in touch, and she's cool, and um. I went was doing the show playing Nareev in Delaware, which is DuPont country, right. right? It's like the Wyeth country and DuPont country. And so I'm at this cocktail party with all these – with the governor of Delaware and all these fancy people. And I go – I'm like, I used to date Lee Carpenter <laughs> and Chris Puccini. I used to date Lee Carpenter. I, I was like, I knew I knew. So we're going back and forth. And then this guy um, from – uh, so Chris actually hooked me up with this like amazing like le- he's like the Donald Trump of Wilmington now. Okay. Um, but the, I was talking to this guy this party about Lee, yeah, yeah exactly. I was talking to this guy about like he goes he goes wow you know you know how much money she says you really missed out. And I just looked at him and I go, I'm just fucking a girl in college, bro. Like you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's what it, it like. I missed out on my big shot to marry someone who's rich. That's a thing that people think is important. And I've, I mean, I remember when I was, I was dated this girl, Julie Lipper, who was like, Ken, like, Lipper finance, I mean, this whole, whatever, Wall Street crazy world. And, and they told me she was worth this money. And then, then, then there's this rumor that kept getting back to me that they thought I was trying to marry into the family. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to date her for another two weeks. Like, I'm trying to get through this month with this. Right. Dumb girl. So the idea that I would marry someone and spend the rest of my life like in some sort of weird indentured servitude to someone because like I get to go to a cocktail party with people who have nothing to fucking say. Why is that interesting? I, I just never I literally am not justifying it or defending it. I do not understand. Granted, I want to fuck a lot of money now. Now that I've been poor for this time, I would like money. But not from someone else. Right. So, when you're when you're first starting out as a starving artist, though, yeah, how were you? What were your first steps out of grad school? Were you? I got I got I had some things that happened that were very lucky. I um my first job was a Broadway gig. Sigourney Weaver saw me in some summer theater thing and said, "Come do this Broadway show." Next gig was off Broadway gig, which be, which won like every award and was like a huge hit and shortlist for the Pulitzer and it ran for like almost two years. So that was like, and then, and then I did, and I did leads in four feature films, two kids films, one film that got shelved in this film, even hand. Mm-hmm. And then I, and I did these breakdancing commercials in Spain, <laughs> which allowed me to buy my apartment. Oh, and wow. I was kitchen. So my first five years out of school was like, Oh, <laughs> this is easy. Did, did that convince your parents that, 
you had made the right call. I think so. I think one time we were we, for the the uh, premiere of of um, you know she goes to Broadway. She's she music going. We right. That's one. And then like shortly after that, she she you know I get a limo limo to pick up her my my dad and the limo picks up. Stanley Tucci and Edie Falco, and then my co-star Bill Sage, and we all go to Tribeca. My parents are like beat red, like, oh, God, you look at you. Like, totally, like, can't say a word. Like, we just saw you when you, you know. So that's something that their doctor brothers, my doctor right. brothers can't provide. So that, there's been enough of that, that they, it's really just about having stories to tell your bridge parties, you right. know what I mean? Um, so was having all that success so early, did that make it easier for you to pursue stand up? Well, that that that's a little bit different. The the stand up thing, the stand up didn't come out of like it never came out of anything career oriented at all. It it came out of um I had some friends, first of all like friends saying like you should you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. Um and particularly when Dane was kind of big, just like when they would see me out drunk, they're like that's what you do. You do weird physical things you're jumping around characters yeah. and like just do something like that you know and I was like uh did a couple best man speeches at weddings people like you should just you know so that's in your it's percolating and then um I did a play uh called Burning Blue in 2002 2003 um got the best reviews of my life in this play never again never will I again when they reviewed New York Times said the well, best thing. Well, they never will I again. Well, New York Times said it's the best thing on New York stage this season. I don't know when I'll ever get that again. I get fired from it. And I get fired from it partially because the, the playwright was a fucking idiot and he, um, oh, I don't mind saying that. He, <laughs> well, there was just like a certain word that just wasn't working. Not mm-hmm. It's like, hey, see, from Arkansas. And there was a word. I was like, hey, can I change this word? No, no, you're just an actor, Bill. You got to understand. I'm the playwright. And I go, yeah, but I think it'll be funnier if I change this. And he goes, mm-hmm. "No." And I kept begging him to change it. And finally, he let me change it one night. I changed the word, "gangbusters," knocks the roof off. It let every made the whole scene come alive after that. And I go, "Oh yeah, man, I understand comedy. I know it works." And da da. And they call back and say, "You have to change it back." I go, "But you saw it. You were there. You saw it work." Doesn't matter. You got. I was like, I don't understand. And I literally like that idea that like my voice as an actor and what I performed, whether it worked or not, was irrelevant to what the director wanted. I don't like this really to a degree. Made me kind of go whether they're right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Just made me kind of go. I'm. I'm always going to be a bottom bitch if I'm an actor. If I'm just an actor. So let me just see what stand up offers me that way whatever the foray into it is, however I get into it, like just my ability to express myself on some level. Did you know anybody already in it? Uh, or, or how did you, how did you first Jason in? Good and was doing it, I think mm-hmm. still doing it, and Je- Jeff Glass, who I think is, is not doing it anymore. They mm-hmm. kind of like, say, hey, let's do an open mic. So mm-hmm. I did open mic and then... In New York or LA? New York. Okay. The first open mic bombed terribly. But there was a tit or two. But I'm... There's a couple things. One is like two realizations. One is like, wow, I really fucking bombed. And and that's not that bad. It's not that bad to bomb. You think like bombing, oh my God, how will I sleep? But it was like, okay, bombed in front of a bunch of strangers. I don't fucking know. Yeah. And then the second thing, I was like, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Let me figure out how not to. So I just started figuring out, for me at the time, it was very much stuff based on like, my my dance vocabulary, physical humor, mm-hmm. and, da, 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 and that was kind of like where a lot of my point of view was coming from at the beginning, which was – so I'm starting like 2004, 2005. It's sort of when I started yeah. doing it. And at that time, it was kind of like the end of the club comic and the birth of the alt comic. So I was kind of like – I'm you know, I was never in the alt – I've done alt rooms. I do suite yeah. and stuff like that. But like um, – I didn't hop on the alt train. I wanted to be, I didn't want to read from Melon Pad. I wanted to be a guy who was like really performing because mm-hmm. I'm an actor and I'm a performer. I'm a dancer. So I want to make it a performance. So, um, so yeah, so that was kind of, and I've, it was never been a career thing. I've never thought about ever getting an agent or a manager for comedy. It's, it, it always was like the second thing that I'll do. And then it kind of took over more of my life and, 
sometimes it becomes the only thing in my life and sometimes then like Montreal festival comes along and then there's interest there and then then you get start being around this world then then there's a part of me that's like let me just go back to my little right. theater for a couple of months in Delaware and escape from because look everything's going to have bullshit like mm-hmm. the, nothing is going to be the ultimate bastion of 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 integrity and authenticity everything's going to have like politics and backstabbing and weirdness and i love the comedy world and i love comics and i think it's actually a lot cooler and people are a lot happier and a lot more fun than than people might think it is from the outside who think mm-hmm. we're all just depressed like people shooting heroin into our veins and, you know so who so with all of these worlds and environments who or what has given you the best advice to kind of sustain Ooh. to kind of sustain yourself through all this and not go insane um. Or quit. <laughs> well, I think I think the best advice is like is really just like, and, and look, there's a lot of stuff I I, I give myself advice about. And I just never follow. I I'm never, I'm never a social comic. I don't go to clubs and hobnob. I don't, you know. I mean, I've never like I've never had an agent for comedy. People are like, how do you get your gigs? I'm like referrals. They're like, that's fucking crazy. Go mm-hmm. for an agent. I'm like. I guess I just want people to approach me, and if I've got asked to headline, I've, when I toured for Jamie Kennedy for th- four years, he asked me, and I've never really pursued it from a business point of view. I don't know why I have it. It's dumb. I don't really talk to comics. I don't really, hey, go hang out with Kelly, the, the, the seller, and put in FaceTime, and then you know, if eventually Essie will see you, and she'll put you up. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's not ego. It's not, I just mm-hmm. no. I'm just not. I'm not at the place in my life where I want to go hang out at the comedy cellar, and put in FaceTime and have Jeff Ross make fun of me just to get earn wings. Like it's f- fine if you want to do that. It's just mm-hmm. not where I'm at. Um, so the best advice I've ever had is just you know, uh, obviously just keep writing, keep creating. You know, you you have to. And the minute someone, and you know, in that how the comedy world, there's like joke thief and da 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 and there have been times in my life that if I do a joke remotely similar something you're doing a joke you know the best advice always guys like just let that joke go and write something else you know because you can you can hang on to the idea that someone's stealing your joke or that we did the same joke and you can get really I'm like I don't care man I've had so many people steal jokes of mine I one of my first jokes I ever did which is a hacky joke where I talk about dating black or having a black girlfriend Mm -hmm. and I go, hey, you know, they say, girl, once you go, once you go white, your vagina stays tight. I said that in two thousand four. It's one of my first jokes. Mm-hmm. And then once you go pale, you never have to post bail. Something like that. It was like an early two thousand five joke. Mm-hmm. I saw that on the season finale, of Shameless. I saw that Jamie Kennedy did that on TV mm-hmm. th- years after that. You know, it's just like it just gets stolen. So then, what do you do? You just don't do it anymore. You know, and then you, and then you. And the cool thing about comedy is there's always there's wherever you are in life there's always a place to go deeper. Like right now, at my having a movie that didn't win anything at South by Southwest, having my hair dyed to be a gay Russian ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And right now it's like the end of it all. The play's over, the movie's over, um, nothing has happened with either. And whatever that, that this weird vacuum I'm in right now, like I gotta speak from that now. You know, and then yeah. sometimes you just go up there and you just fucking like <laughs> hit the tape recorder and let me do your fucking set because you want to feel good about yourself. Mm. So, what would you tell? What advice would you give to somebody brand new? I think the main thing I would give is just, and it sounds really stupid, but just don't like shit on. Don't worry about other comics, man. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about if what they're doing and how they're doing if. I mean, if someone's stealing your act, like, verbatim and da-da-da, like, it's fine. But, like, I've seen so much infighting in the comedy world. I'm like, there's no need for it, man. Like, anyone to get up on stage and do stamp comedy is is has balls, as far as I'm concerned. And they're a crazy person. We're all crazy people. I love it when stamp comics try to act like they're not crazy people. No, you're a fucking crazy person. <laughs> so we're all weird, grown-up, mm-hmm. man-child crazy people. Right. Have some empathy for them. So so love all your comics, man, because like it's really easy to go in there like, I'm the funniest, and he's not funny. Why? 
That's why I don't work at the store that much because all the little – it's like I don't want to be around that. It's like not like everything has to be sunshine, roses, and puppies, but you can live in the, you can live in a great space in, in comedy where you're supportive of people and you don't want to – look, go shit on them when you're home, home with your girlfriend or your best friend. Mm-hmm. But don't be in the club being that negative fucking <laughs> asshole who thinks you fucking invented comedy. Uh, spread love and sunshine and <laughs> – Positivity. But does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? It's no, it does. Positive. It does. Because you see it happen, I just go like, dude, stop, stop. You don't need to shit on <laughs> I mean, I'll give you an example. Dan Cook, who, like, everyone loved to shit on. Yeah. I was just like, I was laughing. I was like, yeah, you can shit on Dan Cook you want. But if you sit there and go, Dan Cook is not, does not, is not a talented comic and does not have genius, then you're fucking retarded and you're deluded if you don't see that. Get out of your own way. Whatever you think about him, at least look at the guy and go, Look what he's done for the world of stand-up comedy. Right. Look what he's done for the Laugh Factory. Look what he's done for L.A. comedy. He's he's done major things, and he's and if you look at the body of his work, it's, f- it's fucking impressive. And all these like alt comics who do it for two years, like me, Dean Cook, getting funny. He's like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, Bill Dawes, let me just say, your body of work is quite impressive, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that. Uh, even after all these years, a couple of crazy weirdos like us can still cool? get together and, uh, <laughs> and smile and laugh. Yeah. It's good. Thanks, Sean. I really appreciate you Thanks, having Bill. me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.